Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Did not think uh, today's show would start with Twitter questions about Otto Porter's potential usage this season with the Toronto Raptors, but here we are. Apparently, that's how things are going with the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, that Otto Porter is the topic of the day. Now, there will be a little bit of uh, of Toronto Raptors and basketball news. We'll, we'll give that to you at 11. There are rumors out there as well that there will be Taylor Swift Toronto news today. Uh, we'll update you on that. But this is a Toronto Blue Jays show. The Toronto Blue Jays got back on the right foot yesterday, whether they like it or not. Uh, only three hits against the Baltimore Orioles, but they come up with a 4-1 to one victory. Thanks in part to Matt Chapman's ample ability to take one off the backside and drive in a run. The erratic control of Shintaro Fujinami, uh, a couple of really well-worked plate appearances from Brandon Belt and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. to chase a pretty effective Grayson Rodriguez from the game. And once again, and it feels like we're saying this an awful lot more as the season goes on, a terrific performance from Yusei Kikuchi. Kikuchi gives up just one earned over six innings, uh, three strikeouts to one walk, only through 91 pitches. And I kind of think he would have been back out for the seventh had the the bottom of the six not dragged on the way it did with multiple walks, multiple hit by a pitch, and guys having to get looked at by the trainers, uh, a pitching change in the middle of that. Thought we might have seen Kikuchi for the seventh. Instead, the Jays handed over their bullpen. Jimmy Garcia, nice clean seventh. Jordan Hicks comes in for the eighth. And hey, if you're worried about the two runs he gave up in his Jays debut, what a spot here protecting a three-run lead against the Orioles. And he's got, of all people, Ryan Mountcastle to deal with first. Uh, walks Mountcastle, gets gets jobbed a little bit on, on the final pitch of that plate appearance, but then strikes out Anthony Santander and gets Austin Hayes to ground into a double play. So if you were Jordan Hicks and you were trying to win Blue Jays fans, you sit down a two, three, four that includes Ryan Mountcastle and Anthony Santander, uh, a couple of Jays killers, Austin Hayes, less a Jays killer with the bat, but that diving catch the other night will, will include him here. Uh, that is nice work for Jordan Hicks. Eric Swanson comes in and not only picks up the save picks Jordan Westberg off at first base to end the game. It's the second night in a row in baseball. We've had a walk-off pickoff. So things are getting weird. Here in August, the trade deadline is officially behind us. So baseball is just like, ah, what else can we do to be buzzy, to be newsy? In the case of the Toronto Blue Jays, it's a walk-off pickoff. It's a couple of runs batted in by hit by a pitch. Uh, It's scoring more runs than you had hits in a game. It's weird baseball. The Jays needed a win. However, they could come about it with that 4-1 victory. uh, Of course, and the uh, little losing streak against the Orioles. They improve all the way to two and seven against the Orioles on the season. They cut the lead in the American League East to six and a half. More important than any of those notes is that they could come away with a split today as Kevin Gosman takes on Jack Flaherty. That game is at three o'clock down at the Rogers Center. We'll, of course, have that for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Blair and Bark will have post-game Jays talk for you as well. Um, so... There are a couple of updates to get to as well before last night's game. Um, By the way, we're going to be joined by Kevin Barker here uh, momentarily of Blair and Barker. We've also got uh, a loaded show with Baseball America, Fangraphs, and Baseball Prospectus. Uh, J.J. Cooper, Michael Bauman, and Patrick Dubuque joining us later in the show. Um, So if you missed it before the game, I'm sure you didn't. Bo put on the injured list. 
No timeline given really for the uh, patella inflammation, but for right now, he's on the IL. Paul DeYoung was activated. Ernie Clement is the extra guy for the time being. We talked yesterday a little bit about whether that spot might be better used on someone who can can add some bat. But for right now, uh, Ernie Clement is there as kind of a break glass in case of emergency utility piece. Thought he was going to get in the game as a pitcher the other day, maybe again. Um, so he's there. Uh, Thomas Hatch was also recalled and activated. Nate Pearson option back down to AAA. Um, probably Thomas Hatch is out whenever Jay Jackson is back off the uh, the family list there. We'll see how that goes. Um, elsewhere, Chad Green made his fourth rehab appearance yesterday for the Buffalo Bisons. Uh, he threw one and two-thirds innings, allowed a hit, struck out two, uh, sat 93 to 95 and a half average 94.4 on the fastball. So about where he was pre Tommy John, not where he was at the peak of being Chad green with the New York Yankees, but back to where he was pre Tommy John. That's a good sign. The Jays have a couple of weeks here to, to slow play this, make sure Chad green is fully back, make sure they're starting to see some swing and miss stuff. In addition to just called strikes and some weak contact contact. Um, and yes, we do have, uh, a little bit of Taylor Swift news. If you had heard that and you were wondering, uh, November 14th, 15th, 16th of 2024, she will be uh, in Toronto. So there you go. We got no we got no trade deadline news, but we get Taylor Swift news and we'll have a little bit of uh, NBA Canada and, and Toronto Raptors news uh, around 11 o'clock as well. And Justin, I'm sorry, I'm not going to discuss the SummerSlam card today. It's not that thin uh, a show, but we can get into it later in the week. Maybe big WWE event in Detroit this weekend is what he's referring to uh, there. So Jay's win last night, the look to get a split today with Kevin Gosman up against Jack Flaherty joining us now to Help us sort through uh, exactly what last night's mess of a game was of Blair and Barker of Jay's talk post game last night and today. It's Kevin Barker. Kevin, how are you this morning, buddy? How, how's it going? I, I listen. Uh, whenever I jumped on here and I heard Taylor Swift, I thought <laughs> I was on the wrong show. No, no. She just announced she's coming to Rogers Center for a couple dates next winter, and people are very fired up about it. It seems. Well, I need to get in line. I'm fired up too, so I'm sure I'll I'll have to go out and buy tickets for that also. Yeah, it looks. Oh, there are six dates at Rogers Center, so we'll we'll have our opportunity. Kevin, I don't I don't cash in our our Rogers chips very often. I don't you know ask for tickets or anything like that or hook up. I do feel like with six shows in Toronto, this is a this is a spot where you and I can can maybe ask for that internal favor here, right? Yeah, I think I'm kidding a little bit more than you are. You're a little bit more excited about that than I am. But yeah, look, it's she's popular. I mean, if you're if you're into that kind of stuff, that's that's a that's a good deal. And hopefully, you have a lot of fun if you go to one of those. Yeah, she'll get uh, she'll get even more there than than the Blue Jays get for some of these sellouts they've Absolutely. had lately with the new uh, the new renovations and the well new said. renovations to come. Uh, so so today down at three o'clock, we'll have a, a big packed house at the Rogers Center as well. Kevin Jays looking for the split against the Orioles. Last night, they come away with a 4-1 win, a game they only get three hits. A couple of the runs come in by a hit batsman. Uh, what did you make of that one? I know you got to win ugly sometimes. That one was particularly strange. 
Yeah, look, it's sort of exactly the way the the season has been. It's been really good starting pitching and a, another quality start. You say Kikuchi's been, you know, almost wonderful. I mean, he's had some hiccups, but consistently having the velocity and the mechanically sound, good finish, good release point. I mean, that's when he's got the good velocity and it's around the strike zone. You got dudes in swing mode. You know, you can get away with a bad slider, a bad curveball. Those two he's been stealing strikes with. He's good enough there. The bullpen looks you know, good enough. They're they're going to pocket that and push the right buttons and try and get the right dude in at the right time. It's been good enough. It's just the lineup, right? It's the it's the you know when are we going to see enough of the Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at bats where he's pumped up about a ten pitch walk? Hmm. That that for me is you know you're trying in the next fifty two games you're trying to make the last fifteen that are against the American League East. To where they don't have to go twelve and three, ten and five. You know, it's okay for them to be able to go eight and seven in those last fifteen. And for me, that ten pitch walk is all you need to know. I don't know if you were watching last night in the mm-hmm. telecast when, when our telecast showed Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hitting off a tee. And the very first thing, because I was sitting with Jeff because we were doing the post game show, and I was wondering why he was so excited to take a swing like that. I can just remember a couple of years ago when the MLB Network went to double-A, I think it was, and Vladdy was hitting home runs off the tee. And I was thinking to myself, and I said out loud to Jeff, did the swing look like that? Like where he was fired up about a lot of hand movement and filleting a ball with fade to right field and being excited about that? Like that for me is sort of where this team is at offensively to where, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention, but do we really want Vladimir Guerrero Jr. excited about passing the baton to Matt Chapman? No offense, but with runners in scoring position, basically, he's been real good. I know he's hit a a grand slam or two, but consistently the at-bats of quality just have not been there. And I get back to those last 15 games of the season, unless Vladdy is not the Vladdy that we've been consistently seeing, it just seems like those last 15 games are going to matter and they're going to have to be elite in those games. And consistently we've seen, even if well, what are they eight and 22, eight and 23, <laughs> like, you know, it's just not been good enough. So that's sort of my takeaway is it's just those at bats where a dude gets, you know, four or five swings and 10 pitch at bats and pumped up that he's three days late on a fastball from a kid, quite frankly, that's at the end is not afraid to throw you a fastball in the meat of the, in the meat of the plate. That's, that's sort of the takeaway for me. So hopefully that gets better. Hopefully the quality of his swings off the field get much better. You know, it's not how many you take. It's it's how perfect they are when you take them this time of the year. So hopefully for Vladdy, hopefully for Jay's fans, it gets better. And he's a little bit more excited about getting the head out and having some productive at-bats that way instead of the 10-pitch walk and, you know, going to, to first base and being excited to pass the baton to, quite frankly, somebody that we don't want the baton passed to. And you mentioned... This- you mentioned the 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 pitches that he was fouling off, and you're not kidding that they were over the plate, over the plate. You go back and you look at the strike zone plot of those four fastballs, pretty much middle middle, and a changeup sitting middle middle as well. Rodriguez was just really struggling uh, to get anything on the edge there at all. So um, obviously an okay result with the walk and the way a couple runs came in that inning. But when you when you talk about Vlad's you know, his noisier hands in those those clips we see of him working on the tee and just where his swing is in general. How do you how do you get back to the Vlad swing that we saw before? Because it does feel like we've been 
kind of chasing our tails a little bit because one thing will get lined up in the swing or, or with the swing decisions, and then something else will, will, will come out of the mix a little bit. You know, I, I know some people have kind of narrowed in on, well, Vlad's a little further off the plate this year. Maybe that's doing something with his hands when it comes to that coverage over the outer third of the plate. What are you seeing with, with Vlad's swing? And, you know, how, how do you get back to the type of Vlad swing you want to see at the plate, Kevin? Yeah, I'm not sure. Look, we've watched enough baseball. I've tried to play baseball at a higher level. It's, it's impossible. This time of the year, I mean, they're four months in. Like, I'm just not sure that the George Springers and the Matt Chapmans and the Vladimir Guerrero Juniors, they have talent. But can all of a sudden you flip the switch that your bats get better? You know, your hands don't move as much. The timing of your lower half is in tune with your upper half, that you have a good enough separation, that you can catch up to a dude on the mound that's at the end that's not afraid to throw you his best fastball in the meat of the order. Like, can he, is he capable of doing that? I'm not sure. And I wonder just by Guillermo Martinez, the hitting coach, and that little clip. Now, I wasn't at the field, and I'm not behind the scenes, and I'm not in the batting cage with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Just those three or four swings that I took, I just can't understand why a hitting coach that just watches the result. Don't even have to watch his swing. Just watch where the ball ends up. He's on the field because he wants to see what the ball does, right? He wants to see carry. He wants to to see a direct line that when the ball comes off the barrel that it's going in a straight line where he wants it to go. It's not fading. It's not out and around. Like, because of that reason, it would have carry. It would go further, and it would end up going where he wants it to go just by watching that. Now, the camera didn't show where it was ending up, but you could tell off the bat that it was sort of, you know, he was trying to lead with the top hand. It was a little out and around. The hand movement was big. Like, he was trying to play catch up, and he was forcing the ball over there. And I just wonder what the conversation's like. Why 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 in August are you not turning around as the hitting coach and going, why are you doing that? Like hmm. you're Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Why by now is it not better? And that for me is the big question because this team needs him. Like, let's be honest. The Matt Chapman's and, and the George Springer, and I hate to say it looks like he's on the back nine. I like it just looks that way, right? This this might be the George Springer that we should be getting used to seeing. I just wonder what the conversation is like. I, I wonder why it's gotten to where it's okay to have that much hand movement. It's okay to not be ready to hit a fastball. And I just got to be honest with you, that part of the game, where they're at in the season, I was just a little disappointed to see Vladdy excited about fouling baseballs off. I I don't know about you, Blake, but that's a little disappointing for me. The expectations that I have for him, again, I get back to that. I used to try and hit. It's the <laughs> hardest thing to do in sports. I, as hard as they throw, pitching's never been better. You can you can say that. Like you, you, you break the numbers down every single day. It's never been better. You have to be ready to hit. And for a dude to his you know, his ability at the plate to be excited the way he is about fouling a baseball off because quite frankly, he's late on a fastball, for me, was disappointing.
I can understand that, Kevin. And, you know, you, you mentioned how much this team needs Vladimir Guerrero Jr. to get back to being the threatening Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Well, that's going to be especially true while Bo Bichette is on the injured list because you look at this lineup and, of course, you miss your best hitter. It's going to look a little weaker. You look at some of those stack columns. You look at the recent performances. And arguably, Brandon Belt's the best hitter on this team right now. Now, he had a good day yesterday, had a pair of hits, had a, a much more straightforward walk to set the table for Vlad there. Um, what, is, what have you thought of? of um, the decision to have Brandon Bell go in the two-hole with Bo Bichette down here? Yeah, I look, I think if he's on your team, he has to hit in front of Vladdy. Like, it's the, you know, whenever Bo's there, and you know this, whenever Bo's there, they don't like Vladdy coming up like two outs on three pitches for the two dudes in front of him. It just seems like that at bat, he doesn't know how to have it, right? It's, do I take a pitch? Do I be aggressive? You know, he's sort of in between, and we've seen the Vladdy that's in between just doesn't look like the Vladdy that they want him to look like. So having that guy that doesn't pay attention to the dude that's hitting in front of him and can work counts and, you know, they dream about that. And he's, to his credit, has been really, really good. Like, you know, we poke fun at him and how is he on this team? Because, you know, they're trying to win a World Series. And, you know, how is he hitting in the meat of the order? He's on their team. This is where he benefits everybody around him. So, yeah, I got no issues right now. This is sort of what it is. Hopefully he can start driving a few more baseballs, getting a few more baseballs below the belt, which is, you know, sort of his little sweet spot because of his little natural uppercut and the way he sits in his swing before he actually makes a positive move, move towards the baseball. So, yeah, he. I mean, he's been – Sort of exactly, I think. I don't know about you, Blake, but I, I, sort of what I expected. I just didn't expect him to sort of hit where he's hitting in the order. But it is what it is, and it gets back to sort of the guys around him. It's I never thought this. I, I'll say this. I never thought that Whit Merrifield would have more home runs with runners in scoring position than Vladimir Guerrero Jr. does August 2nd or 3rd of the season in a season that they were – had aspirations of winning a World Series. That, for me, is just not good enough. So give Brandon Bell credit. I You love his at-bats. I mean, he's competitive. It's He's a tough out, which is exactly what you want around where he's hitting. It's just, I think, everybody else around him, other than Bo Bichette, obviously, that need to pick it up a little bit. And I just wonder, this part of the season, this late in the season, are we asking too much? Yeah, and I, I'm with you, Kevin. I, I think, yeah, Brandon Bell having an OPS up around 800. That's great. That's terrific for Brandon Bell. That's a win for the team relative to expectations. But that being your best hitter now that Bo Bichette is on the shelf is uh, is a tough way to go. Kevin, want to pivot a, a little bit more positive from yesterday's game. Another terrific outing from Yusei Kikuchi. He goes six, only 91 pitches, uh, only allows one run, only one walk again. We, we've seen this pretty regularly now from Yusei Kikuchi. What do you think it is that, that has helped, you know, and I know he had, had a decent April other than the long ball, but really June, July, and now into August a little bit here, we're seeing the best version of Yusei Kikuchi we've seen. Go back to Seattle and, and his half season as an all-star there. That's the only comparable, really. What what are you liking about what Yusei Kikuchi's doing lately? Yeah, it's easy for me. You, you know, the difference between a minor league pitcher and a big league pitcher is a big league pitcher 
always looks the same. Like every single pitch that he throws, mechanically, it's out front. You could lay it on top of each other. It looks exactly the same. I think last year, because of all the things, the start and the stop, it was almost impossible for him to land in the same spot, get the hand out in front in the same spot, have the same release point, have consistent velocity on all of his pitches, which you need that, right? You need to have the same velocity. That will tell you that mechanically you're doing everything right. The arm speed when you get it out of the glove is where it needs to be to get it up above your head on time to allow you to get it out front, to snap it off, to have good movement, to tunnel longer, you know, to break when you want it to break. I just think he went home. Him and Pete Walker, give the organization credit. It's not good enough, right? All the things that he was doing mechanically wasn't mechanically sound enough for him to have a chance to be good enough with command of the fastball and velocity of the fastball. If he was taking care of those two things in the offseason because of the mechanical change, I think everything else would take care of itself. And oh, by the way, he would gain a ton of confidence, which everybody you talk to, I talk to, that's a big deal. I just, again, tried to play. A lot of what you do well at the big league level is determined on how much confidence and, you know, just buy-in that you have of trying to go out and do it and get big league hitters out and try and get hits against big league pitching. So I just think it's that. I think it's that simple that, you know, in the offseason he went home and basically looked in the mirror and said, it's not good enough. I need to mechanically change this. How do I do it to be, you know, repeatability is a big deal to be able to do that and get the velocity on my fastball and just somewhat be competitive with that. He's a, He's not a locator. He's a stuff guy, right? So just be close enough to it's a tough take. Be mechanically sound enough that he can do that. He did it, and we're seeing the results. And where would they be without him? With the way the offense is, where would they be without him? You can argue that, right? Him and Jose Barrios might be the MVPs of the team, other than some of the guys in that pen like Trevor Richards and, you know, some unsung heroes. But without those two guys, I'm assuming they wouldn't be in a playoff spot. Well, I, I don't think they would be at all. If you got even remotely close to last year's Kikuchi or last year's Barrios, your, your rotation would have been uh, in shambles for most of this year. So, um, Kevin, with what Kikuchi's shown you over this last little bit, I know they gave him uh, a little bit of, of extended runway against the Dodgers because their bullpen was in such tough shape there. Um, given what you've seen from him lately, are, are you... Are you comfortable if this team decides to let him go a little longer into games here now? 90 pitches yesterday. I, I think some of that was maybe due to the how just how long the bottom of the sixth was taking him out there. But would you like to see that leash extended a little bit? Yeah, I think the scoreboard will tell you everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like having it at bat in in a in a game. The scoreboard will tell you basically what you're going to get, how many fastballs you're going to get, or will you get a fastball and a fastball count. I think that's how John is trying to work around the back end of his rotation is the scoreboard will tell you. The bullpen's been good. You know, I don't mind Jimmy Garcia coming in in the inning he's coming in. I don't want Jimmy Garcia in the eighth or ninth inning. I'd rather have him in the sixth and seventh inning. That's better, right, depending on where you're at, pockets, lineup. Like, I think it's okay to be okay with him going six innings with one run, and John is sort of trying to figure out. There's no surprises this time of the year. Like, they basically know what they're getting from 
Yusei Kikuchi because he's predictable. Like that, that's what they're trying to, you know, line their entire team around is predictability. If you have that because of what your eyes are telling you and, you know, dare I say what the khakis are telling you, mm-hmm. you know, you get, you get to the certain amount of pitches. This is what the breaking ball is going to start looking like. This is what the movement on the fastball will look like. This is what his wind up, how fast it'll look. And, you know, his mechanics will stay in tune and be balanced. And like he's taking all of those things into consideration and and trying to make the right move and it's okay because you know sometimes I just think we should be happy with what we're getting from him like you just you know don't don't beg for too much (laughs) be happy with what you get turn it over to a really good bullpen because they've earned it you know I'm okay again with lining it up with Jimmy Garcia and Aaron Hicks and or Jordan Hicks uh, excuse me and you know Swanson and it's okay to have those kind of guys coming in games when it matters the most so yeah, I kind of like it just the way it is he's remember he's a fourth and fifth guy he's not a one or two so they're trying to base it on just a bunch of things and trying to make the right move. And I'm sure it would help if their lineup starts hitting like yeah. that. That'll, that'll make all of these little, you know, why are they not leaving them out there for the extra inning? A lot easier for the decisions and for us to be watching and trying to play armchair quarterback. Yeah. I tell you, if of one, time, of the, right? one, if one of those guys hits a grand slam with the bases loaded Boy. yesterday, yeah, you can let Kikuchi up for the seventh, it uh, a little helped, easier. Uh, Kevin, before I let you go here, uh, Jack Flaherty on the mound today against Kevin Gosman. Obviously we all know the Gosman side of things. I, I know, uh, uh, Flaherty's a, a guy that you and Blair talked a little bit about. Um, what are we looking for from him today against the Blue Jays? Yeah, look, yeah, that's a great question. I, I think he went from a team that's not very good <laughs> to a team that's obviously contending and, in my mind, the best team in the American League. How will you handle that, right? I think it's command early. It's it's the velocity on all of his pitches. And the Blue Jays have seen him before, which is a thing, right? It's whenever you've seen somebody, you sort of know how it breaks. Don't overthink it. That's the long-winded answer here is a lot of the Jays – you watch the games, Blake. You know, they look like they overthink it. Sometimes this part of the season, pitchers are as tired as hitters are, right? And mentally, you can just overthink a lot of things. How about occasionally, one through nine, forget all the other things of he'll throw this and this count. You know, it breaks this much if he throws it there, here. If it starts there, take it here. Look here in this count. Why don't look fastball right down the middle until you get to two strikes? I think because if they have talent the way the lineup does, if they can do that against this guy and don't chase early and get themselves out and work his count, that's how, for me, they'll work the count and, you know, sort of force him in the zone. For me, Flaherty's not a stuff guy. He's got to have something on the corners to get you to chase the off-speed stuff. If you can, you know, just sort of take those close ones to try and force him to give you one down the middle, I think maybe they'll have the beginning, which is what they're trying to do, right? It's, I, I think we should just sort of get away from trying to think that they can have a really good first inning, a really good fourth inning, a really good sixth inning. It's the big inning. If they can, you know, lay off the close ones and look for the one down the middle, hopefully they can have the good the, the big inning. And I want Gosman to be a bully. I don't know about you, but the expectations for this team in August is to win a World Series. It's not that to start the season for the Orioles. I want him to throw a fastball on a fastball count and peek on the on-deck circle and basically say you're next. Come and get you some. And if they do that, I think they'll win and they'll split and they'll move on to the Red Sox and they'll do decent there and they'll, you know, they'll win some games. So it'll be fun to watch. You know, 307 starts are different. Hmm. 
you know, you, you got to be prepared for those. It's changing routines, and, you know, it's two teams fighting to be the, the big boys on the block, so it'll be interesting. Yeah, and Gosman with the, the extra little bit of rest here with them operating Ooh, on a six-man rotation. Velocity. Yeah, and he went eight innings last time he faced the Orioles, too, so I'm fired up for this one. Uh, Blair and Barker, you guys will have Jay's talk post-game. Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning. Absolutely. Have a good day, guys. Kevin Barker uh, of Blair and Barker, Jay's talk post-game, and uh, what, however he downplayed the excitement, uh, I'm taking him to one of the Taylor Swift shows, whether he uh, whether he likes it or not. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, so it is Kevin Gosman. It is Jack Flaherty on the mound uh, today. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Take a look back at, at a little bit of, of the deadline stuff, uh, MLB-wide and Jays-specific. Uh, we'll look at some of the prospects they surrendered, what the internal top 30 prospect list now looks like over at Baseball America. We'll bring in J.J. Cooper, the editor-in-chief of that site. He joins us next as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, The deadline is way, 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 way behind us, like a day and a half now. Uh, But it's still worth revisiting, not just for the Toronto Blue Jays, but around baseball. If you were trying to make heads or tails of all of the trades and who paid what for whom, uh, one of the things you were probably seeing a lot was where each prospect ranked within their respective farm system uh, based on Baseball America's rankings. That is, uh, that's the go-to. They had the most recent update. They they did us all the beautiful favor of updating each team's top 30 right before the deadline for us. Uh, we're joined now by the editor-in-chief of Baseball America, J.J. Cooper. J.J., how are you? I am great. And, Blake, you guys are one of my favorite shows to come on. You had Elliott Smith bumper music. I am a giant Elliott Smith fan, so thumbs up on that. That was awesome. I am, good to talk to you today. I'm, uh, I'm aware. I, I do, you know, do the homework, and I'm an Elliott Smith guy too. So, uh, you know, <laughs> this is uh, you know, going to Soccer Mommy and Maggie Rogers in, in Toronto tonight. So there, there's Elliott Smith influence everywhere, JJ. Um all right. That's awesome. So uh, the the deadline chaos, I, I know you guys had a ton of work to do at Baseball America. You were running the live blog there. Uh, you're the editor-in-chief, so you're, you're kind of, you know, herding sheep when, when it comes to herding cats. Yeah, watching over all of it. Yes. Um, so I wonder, does it drive you mad during all of that? And obviously it's a lot of fun and we all really enjoy it. But when people reference the outdated, not the most recent update of Baseball America's prospect rankings. Uh, how much do you have to kind of like bite your tongue and de- breathe deeply to, uh, to, to handle that? Sometimes I do a good job of biting my tongue. Sometimes I don't. Um, I, again, in the thing I would say about it is, is I'm, I try to be consistent about this. Like if you cite our rankings, it's not like I'm picking on anyone else. If you cite our rankings from the preseason, you're not getting a full picture. It's right. just to give an example, right? Like you'll see players traded and it's like, oh, I, generally it goes this way, right? Like <laughs> fans will generally, I would say, depending on their perspective, they will either find the most optimistic ranking to show how 
their team pulled one over on another team, or they'll find the worst ranking if they're angry at their GM about how they mm-hmm. got snowed by, you know, on this trade, right? And and the thing about it is, is these players do change a lot. Now, they don't always, right? Like, at the top of this, Jackson Holiday was an elite prospect coming into the year, and Jackson Holiday is an elite prospect now. Jackson Trio, same way. And those don't really change, but those guys also don't get traded. But when you're talking about, like, when the Mets bring a deal with the Marlins for David Robertson, you got a guy like Marco Vargas who's, who's four or five years away from the big leagues, who's just basically just made a stateside U.S. minor league debut, that guy, people liked him a lot better than they did. He was already promising and interesting coming into the year, but people, scouts, evaluators feel better about him now than they did then. And you kind of have to reflect that, like, no, that was a good return for the Mets, where the, the example that really stands out to me is, is a couple of years ago, Yankees fans looking at the Joey Gallo trade, if you looked at it from before that season's rankings, it was like, wow, we just gave up uh, Duran and Josh Smith. I mean, you know, they're not even in our top 20. Well, both of those guys have had breakout years, and if you look at what those guys are doing in Texas, it's like, yeah, they had breakout years. They were better prospects. That was a really good get for the Rangers. That, it's a lot of work, but we really do believe it's important. Uh, to be updating this throughout the season for that reason. Maybe this is pulling the curtain back a little bit too much, but in the times leading up to the deadline, obviously major league staffs have Mm -hmm. have loads of of scouts and things like that. And they're not just firing up baseball America to look, but you guys have a a big staff of people also putting eyes on these guys. How how much are you and your writers talking to um, teams at at the scout or even head scout or or fact checker level? um, Not only for, for you guys to lock things in for, for your updated midseason rank, but those sides wanting to pick the brain of you and your writers? You got a little bit of both. I mean, again, I would say that we pick their brains much more than they pick Mm. our brains, but there are absolutely times where it's like, hey, uh, what do you think about this player? And you know, like, oh, that player then gets traded a little while longer, you know, a little while down the road, right? Like, and, but I would say also with that to answer your question, like, I mean, we don't have a, you know, we don't have a giant staff, but we basically got three people who full-time cover prospects. That's their main job. And then we have others who also cover prospects in addition, you know, who do that part of their job. Right. And they, you know, we have, we are blessed with some of the best jobs in the world. So those guys love to go to games. You know, they love to go to games and they're at games a lot. And so it's, they're seeing things, but also then when you're there, you're, you know, you're sharing information. You're talking to players, to, to scouts who have better information than we do. We're trying to gather as much data as we can. You know, we have also nowadays, there's a lot more video and all than it was when I started at Baseball America. And what we're trying to do, and I can't tell you that we're ever going to succeed 100% on this, but we're trying to reflect what the industry perceives as far as these players. And when I say that, we'll never get that 100%. It's a moving target that's not even, like, possible to hit 100% because, like, when we are doing a top 100 prospects update, sometimes we'll get feedback from one pro scouting director like, that guy's too high, and we'll get a feedback from another pro scouting director that says, that guy's too low. And you've got to figure out, okay, you know, which one's right, or is it somewhere in the middle? You know, there's, there's never, like, this is never black and white. But we do feel good about the fact that we saw this at the trade deadline again this year, a lot of the players who are moved are ones who've had movement this year, right? Mm-hmm. So either it's 
this guy seems to have positive momentum. He's a better player than we thought coming into the year. Let's acquire him. Or in some cases, it's like, oh, this guy's really seeming like heading in the wrong direction. But sometimes those are by low candidates, right? Like maybe he's just having a rough year. Maybe he's going to get better. Yeah, that's that's entirely possible, and that movement to track, you know, it's it's really fun from the outside when a trade happens, and then you're looking, okay, what what's you know what's the buzz here? Why this guy versus that guy? Uh, especially when it's an org that is not the org you're doing two hours of radio about every single day. Uh, curious, JJ, you mentioned you know the the. Access to video is one thing that that has changed since you started at Baseball America. I think that goes back to 2002. Um, How much has the scouting game changed for Baseball America? Like, obviously, you know, our access to stats and things like that is way, way better now. But what what has been, you know, kind of what you see as the the fundamental change in how uh, an outlet like Baseball America scouts over the years? What's been the the biggest shift for you over the, the 20 plus years? What I would say is is we've gone from an era of information scarcity to an information of information overabundance. <laughs> and I would say with that, like, one thing is is we, we have to be better at what we're doing now than we did in 2002 because there are so many more tools that we have now, right? Like, I mean, to go – I mean, again, I'm old. I've been at – yeah, I have been at BA since 02. In 02 – Part of the challenge was even like just, you know, we had, we had cell phones, right? But it was like you were trying to get like what the velocity was on a pitcher was an effort, right? Like, hey, I've got to find someone in this, you know, someone who's seen this pitcher or someone from that pitcher's organization to know like is he, if we haven't seen him ourselves, is he 91, 94, is he 92, 96, is he 98, 99, right? Like all that was – what, what are his secondary pitches, right? In 02, you were kind of starting from every year, kind of almost from – you knew what they had coming into the year, but you really needed to, to do a lot of work just to gather what we would now consider extremely basic information. That was not – it was not just even publicly available. It was hard to acquire from private sources at the time, right? No team – like – in 02, 03, I would be talking to, you know, uh, a scout I know, and I would say, hey, you know, what, what do you guys have on this guy or whatever? And, there, and the answer sometimes would be, we don't have a report on him, right? And what that meant is at that time, they may have an amateur report, but they couldn't tell you at that time. They had, because this player was hurt when our scout came through at that point, all that kind of stuff. They just didn't, they hadn't seen him that year or the year before in some cases. Well, now there's no such thing as, hey, you know, hey, this, 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 this pitcher in high A, what do you have on him? And there's no such thing as, oh, we don't have anything on him. Because, you know, at the MLB level, they have what every pitcher, their average velocity, their max velocity, the movement on their pitches, how often hitters swing and miss at it in zone versus out of zone, how often they chase how often they throw strikes, all these kind of pieces of information are now not just, I mean, those are MLB teams have that for everyone, but then even at the public level, we have that access to that. Anyone, a fan has access to that at the AAA level, the major league level and the Florida state league level. So that's all information that 
didn't exist in O2 that's now readily available, and we have to use that to help interpret what we know now in ways that we couldn't even think of trying to do in O2. And that's not even before we get to the fact that nowadays any full-season player plays in parks that have broadcast. And that, I mean, again, that was even 10 years ago not true, where there were players who never played on a public broadcast during the season. Now there's no such thing as a player who doesn't play on public broadcast during the season. Yeah, the only the only blank spot we have in Toronto, I think, is the the Dominican League and the the Florida yeah. Complex League. So Arjun, the complexes, right. yeah, Every Arjun, full season, yeah. Arjun Namalo make his pro debut today. Actually, uh, if things go as scheduled, then this game isn't rained out as Monday's was. Uh, so the Jays' first round pick, he'll make his debut. But we'll have to scout the box score for that one. Uh, JJ did want right. to ask you about a couple of the Blue mm-hmm. Jays' deals at the deadline. So they give up Sam Robertson and Adam Klavenstein for uh, Jordan. Hicks, those players ranked respectively seventh and 18th on the Baseball America mid-season update of the Jays system. Uh, they then deal Matt Svonson, uh in as the return for Paul DeYoung, and, and I know he didn't make the top 30, but he was a guy who you guys at Baseball America were reasonably high on for, for a guy who was a 13th round pick in the 2021 right. draft. Uh, what did you make uh, of the Jays' deadline overall, sending those three prospects and, and uh, a fringy guy in Sammy Hernandez out for DeYoung, Hicks, and a little earlier, Genesis Cabrera? The thing that stands out to me about it is, is, and I say this every year, now, it is possible. We like, especially like Roberto, we like Klossenstein. Uh, if you told us, if you told me that, hey, we're looking at this five years from now, and the Blue Jays got two months of Jordan Hicks, and in return they lost a guy who's, you know, who's a useful, you know, solid MLB, let's say, reliever, you know, for that. Okay, very possible. But that said... Like, there always is – there's um, there's a value to now every – you know, in, in baseball and every sport compared to the future, right? For one, it's less murky than the future. But for two, winning, a, winning something now is more valuable than the possibility of winning something three, four, five years down the road, as at least as I perceive it. And the thing with these deals that do stand out to me is it's just a reminder that – the Hicks trade was probably one of the larger returns we saw on a, you know, he, because he's a, as far as relievers go, this is a, a high leverage can close games reliever, not just a guy that you're looking to add innings. So the cost on that's going to be higher. But you look at what they, what the, you know, that, that Cardinals trade and that's adding, uh, you know, a multi year MLB starter at shortstop who's now just going to largely be insurance you know, and, and depth for the Blue Jays at an incredibly modest cost. The thing that stands out to me to kind of put a bow on it is if I'm a Blue Jays fan, the thing that really excites me now that the deadline's done is the teams that are chasing Toronto, especially if we say that, like, whether it's, let's say for right now for a wild card spot, especially the Yankees and the Red Sox, they didn't do much. I, I feel like that the Blue Jays did more than they did, and I don't, I don't think it's always necessarily who wins the trade deadline is the team that wins, you know, makes it to the playoffs. But you do have to feel good if you're a Blue Jays, if you're a Blue Jays fan, that you already have a, you know, a, a couple of games advantage right now in that race. And the Blue Jays got better, modestly, but they got better. And the teams that are chasing them really didn't. 
Well, that's good news because the thing that I think would have been worrisome if you're the Blue Jays is if one of those teams, if the Red Sox, if the Yankees, like if you're in the AL West right now, you, if you're the Angels, you made a good move. You made a couple of moves to try to put it all together and make a run, and then you turn around and look at it, oh, wait, we're actually further behind the Astros and the Rangers than we were before this all started because they made bigger moves. It's not the case in the AL East. If you look at the Blue Jays, it's like you could say, okay, you're probably not going to catch Baltimore, and you could say that Baltimore made a similar amount of improvement, I would say, with the Flaherty trade. But the teams that are chasing the Blue Jays, no, you did more than them, and you're already ahead of them. So congratulations, Blue Jays fans. Blue Jays fans at this moment, JJ, feel differently than you. They feel they were a right-handed bat short. Of course, Bo Bichette hitting the injured list right at the deadline colors some of this as well, as did a uh, 13-3 drubbing at the hands of the Orioles on Tuesday. Uh, but that's some good uh, high-level national perspective. I- I'm curious as to what your take was on how the Orioles operated and how the Orioles have operated in general, because obviously they did the, you know, their fans have paid the freight for this. They were unwatchable mm-hmm. for a couple of years there. They've built up this really strong system that has graduated guys to the major league level, more guys to come. Now we've seen teams be able to sustain a pipeline like that, where, you know, the Rays are always trading and tinkering. The Dodgers are always cashing in some of that prospect cash Mm -hmm. for win now help the Orioles deciding, you know, Hey, not only are we going to maintain this, but we're really not going to pull from it much, even though we're in first place. And I know they gave up what they gave up for Flaherty. Wasn't nothing, but it wasn't significant. Um, Is there going to be a point at which the Orioles, you know, need to look at this and be a little more aggressive, consolidating some of the strength of prospects that they have? At some point, they're going to have to, right? Because prospects are generally uh, a wasting asset, right? What I mean by that is, is that they, they grow in value as far as their national, their perceived value in the industry, but Either at some point they graduate to their to your they're on your big league roster, or if they just sit in AAA, at some point they kind of grow a little stale, right? Like they, there's a blessing and a curse to this, which is I'm sure that there were teams who looked at Baltimore and said, "Look at all these infielders you have," and thought like would make an offer like, "Yeah, I know that that guy's really good, but he's not going to play for you, so why don't you include him in the deal?" And I don't think that's the way Baltimore operates, right? <laughs> What I can't tell you right now is did Baltimore relatively stay pat because they didn't see any offers out there that they thought made sense for them, or did they stay pat because they have an ownership group who's not really that willing to spend money? Because the two of those things from the outside look very similar, I would say. And at some point – now, the thing I'll say with that is is there weren't that many – players out there that fit exactly what Baltimore needed that I think like it would have been great for them to add an ace pitcher, but they're really, you know, the, the guy that made sense for them was Otani and he wasn't on the market. Right. I don't know necessarily. I can't even tell you that a Scherzer or Verlander, I don't know if Verlander would, you know, those guys had some kind of sway about where they were going to go. I don't know if those were options necessarily for Baltimore. Well, you kind of quickly run out of, logical starting pitching options. They got one of the better ones on the market in Flaherty. And the other part of it that is kind of true, as much as I'm a little worried about how their starting pitching is kind of running out of innings, they are the best team in the American League right now. And 
they're they're still on an up arrow. Their their trajectory for 23, 24, 25 is they should be better in 24 than they are in 23. They should be better in 25 than they are in 24 because they have Adley Rushman franchise talent. They have Gunnar Henderson who looks like a franchise talent. They have Jackson Holiday coming up who may be a franchise talent who's already in double A. That's a core. I mean, again, this is what we've seen in Toronto. Now you've got to bring things in around it, but when you do kind of push a core through like a Boba Shet, like a, you know, like a Vladimir Guerrero Jr. You know, and basically, you know, throw in a nice surprise like an Alejandro Kirk, you know, and things like that. It gives you a whole lot of freedom to do other things. So far, Baltimore's freedom is largely stuck with kind of modest moves where they get guys better, right? They get guys, they bring guys in from the outside. They turn Yiner Cano, who was at the time of the trade, like, okay, this is a nice arm project. And a year later, he's a stud for them. They turn Felix Batista, they develop him to be a lights-out closer. They've done that kind of thing really well. Now the question is, okay, at some point, it also makes sense to add a, a guy from outside or two to that as well. That's a significant acquisition to just potentially get you over that final hump. They're going to the playoffs now. Now the question is, can they win a World Series? Yeah, and they might be a little early for that. And the fact that you're, you know, you and everyone else, we can watch this team. It looks like an upward trajectory is frustrating. If, uh, again, if you have to do two hours of Blue Jay show every day uh, for the next couple of years, potentially, uh, it's a lot. Okay, JJ, before I let you go, um, positive on the, the Blue Jays development side. As you were going through the updated top 30, as you were looking at potential names at the deadline, uh, is there anyone in the Blue Jays system who, who's kind of got that upward arrow for you who you're interested to see the rest of the way? Man, I was going to say I'm going to defer a little bit to, uh, to to Jeff Ponce on this. I think you guys are going to have on Z. He follows the Blue Jays system like like a hawk. I mean, I think he's seen most of the guys at some point this year. But I I will say uh, again, we've you, you look at what we've done with Morales Martinez. We've moved him back up. Like I was a into the year. I give him utter credit. He has improved in the areas where he needed to make not just improvement but significant improvement. If you look at his approach now, if you look at his ability to make contact, it's at a different level than it was uh, you know, a year ago. And he's still got work to do, but this was kind of, I, I would describe it as the fork in the road year for him, right? Like if he had just come out and been the same guy he was last year, you probably would say it's probably not going to happen for him. Instead, He's made significant improvements in things that he needed to improve, which puts him on a trajectory where you say the, the things that made him such a fascinating prospect two years ago, a year ago, are still there. But now he's kind of rounded it out with some skills to go with those tools where he's a significantly better prospect in my mind now than he was coming into this year. Well, that's great to hear, whether it's for down the stretch or potentially next year where there are some uh, some free agent holes for this Toronto Blue Jays team. Uh, J.J. Cooper of Baseball America, keep up all the great work. Thanks for taking the time out this morning. This was fun. 
JJ Cooper, editor in chief at Baseball America, an absolute OG in the uh, baseball scouting and writing about prospects uh, game. So make sure you check out Baseball America. You can read more about all the Blue Jays prospects there. Again, the internal organization top 30 was updated right before the trade deadline. Uh, so you can take a look there at some of the top names. Uh, Ricky Tiedemann headlining that list, followed by Arelvis Martinez, Brandon Barriera. Addison Barger. Those are guys that you probably know a little bit about at this point. Tiedemann and Barriere actually on the weekend started uh, two heads of a, a double header together, which was uh, which was pretty fun. Chad Green in that game as well. And, and I mentioned it there briefly. Uh, first round pick and 20th overall selection. Arjun Namala is going to make he was supposed to make his pro ball debut on Monday. Technically, he got an at bat, but the way the statistical record works, that game was suspended. It's not being made up until August 8th. So he'll play today and today will be his official debut. A little, a little bit of a, a weird quirk there. So make sure your, your box score hunting uh, for Namala down with the Dunedin team in the, uh, the Florida coast, uh, Florida complex league rather. And uh, yeah, a number of the Jays prospects that have been popping up on those minor league box scores. Let's swing it back to the major leagues. We'll take a break. We'll bring in Mike Bauman of Fangraphs, not Mike Bauman of the Baltimore Orioles, although he wrote about him recently. Uh, we will talk all things Blue Jays, take a, a look at the state of the American League heading into the final stretch here, and uh, going to make Michael Bauman rank all 236 Mountain Goats records. Uh, that's next on Jays Talk Plus on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Big opinions and in-depth conversations covering the Leafs, Jays, Raptors, and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, join now. By Michael Bauman of Fangraphs. And Michael, that little uh, note on the way in is just setting you up. We're, we're going to rank every Mountain Goats album in painstaking detail. You ready? I was going to say, I love your bumper music. <laughs> this is unusual for, for Radiohead. Yeah, that's uh, you know that's what you got um, to do to keep yourself occupied, I guess, over the uh, over the course of a week. Um, man, uh, so we're, we're out of the deadline, thick of it uh, a little bit now here on Thursday. The deadline was, of course, Tuesday at 6 p.m. You guys at Fangraphs, uh, how much fun is a, is a day and a week like that for you guys, that, that chaos that's obviously going on, you know, internally and trying to turn around so many stories in a, in a quick window? Uh, how much fun was that? So this was my actually my first deadline at Fangraphs. I joined the site uh, early September last year, and I don't know if you've ever seen it, uh, a cycling team time trial where there's one person <laughs> out in front like pulling everybody else and then somebody else takes a turn and then somebody else takes a turn. That That's sort of what it was like. Everybody was going as fast as they can, but like great teamwork, everybody stepping up. It was a lot of fun to be a part of that. Yeah. Now, now I'd imagine that it's just kind of next person up. Like, Hey, there's a new trade who's available, who just finished writing. But I do kind of wonder, like, do you try to slow play hitting publish on, on some stuff so that you can get the ones where you can do silly, goofy headlines? Uh, so there was some, of, there's a little bit of that. Okay. I, I certainly didn't slow, uh, slow play hitting publish, but like people sort of called shotgun on players that, that they had written about a lot. Um, so like, for instance, like Jake Berger is one of my guys. <laughs> so Meg made sure I, uh, I got the write up for his trade, but 
for a lot of it, it was just next man up. Yeah, Jake Berger, uh, one of the names that moved. He's a Miami Marlin now uh, going over from the Chicago White Sox for another Jake, of course, Jake Eater. Um, So you didn't end up with the Toronto Blue Jays trade on that day. They made three over the last uh, week and change, all with the St. Louis Cardinals, the net of them being Jordan Hicks, Paul DeYoung, Yenesis Cabrera, for Semmer Bersa, Adam Klopfenstein, Matt Svonson, and, and Sammy Hernandez. Uh, two of those prospects, a, a little fringy, two of them kind of in the, the five or the six to 20 range on the prospect rankings. Uh, what did you make of the Blue Jays' deadline work overall and maybe some of the work they weren't able to do? It's interesting. The Blue Jays are in this uh, big, you know, basically the only, you know, I think we've been spoiled by the last couple of deadlines, you know, Max Scherzer and Trey Turner moving uh, in the same trade a couple of years ago, uh, Juan Soto moving last year. Uh, you know, maybe this deadline was, was a little underwhelming just because the Nats didn't have anybody else to sell. Uh, but apart from the two Texas teams who sort of raided the, um, rated the Mets during their, their payroll bump uh, and the angels who were throwing everything at the wall to try to get one, you know, playoff appearance with Shohei Otani, everybody else made incremental improvements. And I think that, you know, from the Marlins down to uh, the Orioles, like there's a you know, group of, of about a dozen teams that are, they all, you know, plugged a hole basically, but I don't know if they, they really uh, did a whole lot to get better. I think the blue Jays are in that camp. Um, I think they will absolutely. They would absolutely rather have uh, you know, Paul DeYoung than not, uh, particularly considering that Bo Bichette's uh, going on the injured list. I like both the relievers they got. I think Jordan Hicks, despite getting all these headlines for for throwing as hard as he does, I think he's a little underrated uh, at this point in his career. And Henesis Cabrera, you just you know you can't get that velocity from the from the left hand side uh, anywhere. So, you know, I like all these trades. I. I come away with a similar outlook on a lot of these teams at the, at the deadline is that I'd like the moves. I'm disappointed that they didn't get more done, but also looking at what the market seemed to be uh, there. Some of the surprising names didn't move. Dylan Cease, I think is the, the big one from Chicago. Those, those kind of moves would have been cost prohibitive for a lot of teams. So it just seems to be the way that the market shook out. The, the Blue Jays definitely got better, but so did all the teams there competing with yeah everyone kind of just got a tiny bit better in the AL central continued to get pillaged and, and the one relatively not terrible team in the AL central just decided to, to also not do anything uh to get yeah. better so it, it's weird you know a lot of moves but I, I don't know that anyone you know sh- grades out the the american league hierarchy too too differently uh curious michael as to how you read that lack of movement on the market at the higher end. And I'm thinking specifically on the position player side because it affected uh, the Toronto Blue Jays, but also because if you look ahead to this winter, it's a perilously thin free agent market on the position player side as well. Do you think that those two things are related teams just being a little less willing to give up anyone with any semblance of control? How do you, I guess, just do you make heads or tails of the way the market played out for position players? Well, I'd have to think that those two things are related in in some respect. Uh, The big thing is a lot of the names that we thought about maybe moving, Otani being the uh, foremost among them, but also Blake Snell. The second wild card has brought teams into contention that wouldn't have been there even two years ago. And if it's just a rental, 
I think the the Padres you know, with with Snell and Josh Hader, they made the the estimation we're not going to get a lot for these guys. We might as well take our I'll look up their you know, their playoff probability. Uh, we might as well you know, take our our forty percent chance of getting into the wild card round uh, and see what see what happens there rather than you know get the fourth best prospect in whoever system for a guy who's going to be on some Cy Young ballots this year. And so I think the, the thinness of the impending free agent crop um, probably had something to do with that just because these are a lot of the same players, but there just weren't that many teams that were highly motivated to sell. And I think that had more to do with the the slow market than anything else. In terms of the motivation to buy side of that, um, how much do you think the, tweak to the playoff format plays in here. I'm thinking specifically, you know, the teams that have a reasonable shot at getting that buy through the wild card round. Those are the teams that we saw be aggressive. Now, part of that is those are the best teams and they have the best world series odds. So they have incentive that way too. But it does seem to me over the last couple of deadlines that there is a little bit, at least maybe teams not valuing just sneaking into a wild card spot quite as much and i you know the jays lived this last year being a very good team that was bounced in two games um do you see that having an impact on on the buyer side of the market the way the way i'd put that is i think there's a higher motivation to get the buy which is one thing that i'm not a big fan of of expanded playoffs in general across all sports but also i like the new mlb playoff spot because it gives you something to fight for at every step up the ladder and so, you know, we've, we've got teams like the Rays are making a, a trade for Aaron Savali to, to try to um, jump back ahead of the Orioles, uh, which they absolutely would not have done if if it was the difference between the one seed and the four seed in the, the previous wildcard format. And so I think that that makes it more competitive. That causes teams to raise their asking prices. Uh, so I think that and that's the motivation behind the, the deals that the Rangers made. I think the Rangers are one of the few teams that really went out there and hit the gas on this, uh, in this trade deadline, not just with the Scherzer deal, but like Jordan Montgomery as well. And so they have something to trade for. They have something to, you know, a, a really compelling reason to stay ahead of the Astros. And so I think that that causes teams like the Cardinals or whoever else is selling to, to raise. I just bring up the Cardinals because that's apparently the only team the Blue Jays can <laughs> trade with. Uh, but it, it causes them to raise their asking prices. And you know, there just wasn't a deal there for, you know, for, uh, for those position players that you were talking about, or even some of these, you know, some of these, uh, uh, potentially impact making pitchers. Uh, Michael, when we, when you and I eventually sit down and we design our 128 team league format that, you know, we're, we're both yeah. in favor of a mega expanded league. We'll be very careful to make sure the, uh, the incentive leverage points and steps up the ladder are uh, in the right places. Okay. So that was the deadline for the Toronto blue Jays Hicks, the young and Cabrera in maybe some missed opportunity to add a bat that, Hey, maybe wasn't even there or, or available to them on the market. Uh, deadline, line behind us now when you when you look at how the table is set in the American League for this final third of the season um, what are your general impressions of the Blue Jays where do you think they measure versus say a Baltimore Tampa or Texas Houston in that American League picture I think they're at the bat so I'll I think that there's a clear cutoff after Toronto uh, the the six teams that are in playoff positions for the uh, for the American League right now are 
in my mind, definitely the six best teams. And that doesn't mean that the Angels can't get hot or, you know, or the Red Sox or, God forbid, the Yankees. Uh, but I think that there is a clear drop-off after that. And I would be mildly surprised if, if you know, the seeding will probably change, but it, the order will change. But I think the six teams that are in now will go. Uh, I think the division is probably out of reach. Uh, but that said, I, the Blue Jays are very lucky the Orioles didn't get anybody better than um, – than Jack Flaherty, who is a huge name, but is not the pitcher he was a couple of years ago. And they were, you know, they were linked to cease. They were linked to uh, back when Otani was on the market. You know, they had the prospects to really do some damage here and they just didn't. And it, you, know, you could levy, levy the same charge at the, uh, at the Reds is over there in the national league. But I think that I would expect the, the blue Jays to be in the playoffs, be in the wild card, probably, um, uh, you know, be in that, that first round series on the road. What I will say is just looking at their schedule, the two time, the two kinds of teams that you want to play when you're in Toronto's position where you're in, sort of in a very high leverage playoff spot, the two types of teams you want to play are teams that you're competing directly with. So you can do damage by also enforcing a loss on them as, if you win the game and teams that stink. <laughs> and that's basically the rest of Toronto's schedule apart from that one interleague stretch uh, next week. And that's they're basically only playing other AL Eastern wildcard teams and also terrible teams. And so that's a good place to be. This is the kind of schedule that you need if you're going to try to make up a, a six-game deficit in the division. So I, I definitely think it's possible that they could go, you know, get back into this division race. But, uh, you know, I think the wild card is probably going to be where they end up. Yeah, it seems that way. And, you know, two losses in this series to the uh, to the Baltimore Orioles already certainly doesn't help. Chance to salvage uh, a split today. Yesterday, uh, curious, Michael, and I apologize if you haven't gotten to dive in deep yet, but I'm sure you see the box scores. You you see the numbers going as they are. Are you, given what you've been able to, to see and look at in the numbers, uh, a Yusei Kikuchi turnaround believer? Uh, maybe. I mean, he's been a guy that <clears throat> we've been sort of looking for the the Blue Jays to to unlock whatever it is in him. You know, he was a guy that uh, when when he signed, the uh, people were saying, "Oh, is this guy the next Robbie Ray?" And so, you know, I definitely like where the peripherals are at right now. The um, uh, the I think his home run rate is sort of inflating its FIP. I just wrote a thing today about Lance Lynn, who is the king of having your FIP. Uh, uh, inflated by your, your home run rate. So that's a little, um, a little concerning, but yeah, you know, I've always been a Kikuchi fan and I was sort of surprised that he didn't get off to a better start at, uh, you know, when he first showed up in Toronto, uh, on the other side. So that's, that's our Toronto side here. What about the, the Philadelphia side, the, the Michael Lorenzen edition, of course, that came with the unfortunate, uh, rule five, Noah song. It's not going to work out. He, he's DFA'd, uh, he's out of here, but the Phillies adding Michael Lorenzen from the Tigers. Um, did you like that move? And, and is that enough for Philadelphia who are in a very similar spot, uh, in the national league to the, to the blue Jays in the American league? Yeah, I like that trade. I think that I, I don't know if you if the the quotes from Brandon Marsh filtered up there. They played together in in uh, Anaheim, and Marsh said, "Oh, he's a great pitcher. He's a great teammate, and he's got huge biceps." So I'm happy to to see him back here. Um, I think Lorenzen is a guy who can sort of fill a role that Matt Strom has been filling for for the Phillies is sort of a combination innings eater, high leverage reliever, depending on when or depending on the, the other needs in the rotation. So he's a guy who can give them length, but also give them quality length, which is what they've needed. Um, 
I think the biggest surprise maybe in the entire deadline is the Phillies didn't go out there and add a right-handed bat. But Dave Dombrowski, uh, after the, the deadline passed, when he talked to the media, just explained that they were looking at, at the potential options out there. They were linked to Teoscar Hernandez and Adam Duvall. And he just said, like, does this really make us better? Like, are we going to give one of our top ten prospects up for – you know, for somebody who isn't really that good and is just sort of ticking a box. And so I think that speaks to uh, how much of a seller's market this was, and they just couldn't find a deal that worked for them, or maybe they weren't really enamored with the options that were available. So that's understandable, but that's still a big hole that I'm, I'm surprised they didn't fix. And they don't really have any options internally to do that. So there are a couple other NL teams that, that jockeyed around a little bit. The Padres going for for vibes with G-Man Choya and Rich Hill. Uh, the Reds deciding not to put a ton in um, as their kind of magic season with a huge negative run differential in, in a tight division uh, kind of tiptoes on, on the edge here. And then there were the Dodgers who, uh, shocker, and I know you wrote about this at, at Fangraphs yesterday or, or maybe this morning, um, yeah, this morning I, I read it. Uh, Lance Lynn immediately, you know, some magic there. The the Dodgers helping him figure things out. Um, when you look at the National League in general, um, whether the Dodgers or another team, did anyone close the gap enough with the Atlanta Braves? No, the Braves are so far ahead of, of everybody else in the, in the NL. I don't. I'm not really sure that any National League team really did a whole lot to improve their fortunes for, for the positive. You know, it's one of those things that I was just talking about. Like, I like the Lorenzo trade. I like the, the trades that the Padres made. I think the Marlins probably came out best, but no real impact player changed hands within the National League. And so I think that this is a, a huge, um, you know, Sam Mole is the only move the, the Reds made at the deadline. Like that's that's a that's an own goal. It's a huge missed opportunity for a team that's relevant for the first time uh, in a real season in like a decade. And I think that what what we're seeing now is the uh, the impact of ownership. And so we're seeing teams that that have uh, like what you want out of an owner is you'll sign all the checks and you'll get out of the way. <laughs> and so that's what's happening. You know for whatever real world reservations you have about Steve Cohen, he's he bought them a farm system over the uh, over the past week. You know the Rangers uh, are going all in, the Padres are going all, or, or at least deciding not to sell or not to not to pivot. And the Phillies have have one of those ownership groups, and and they made some moves. Whereas in Baltimore and Cincinnati, which have two of the worst ownership groups, they have exciting teams that are nationally relevant, not that just nationally relevant, but like dominating the national conversation. The the Orioles were up here in Philadelphia last week. It's only a two hour drive. And I was astonished by the amount of orange that I saw in the like there were more people in orange shirts than there will be at most Flyers games uh this season. And they're not capitalizing on that. Are you kidding? And so I think that a team like the Reds could have, you know, could have closed that gap if they had really opened up the the coffers for Cease or, you know, maybe tried to rearrange things by trading Jonathan India and it just didn't happen. And I think that that's going to be one of the biggest disappointments for me, but I think that to your original question, the Braves are, are way out in front of everybody else. It's going to take, you know, I think that any team that's in the, in the playoffs is capable of taking a piece out of the Braves in a short series, but they're going to, they're going to walk to that number one seed. They're going to walk to that number one seed. They have a 12-game lead in the division, and they're on their way to getting a, a couple of important arms back. So a uh, tough one there for everyone else in the National League. Uh, Michael, before I let you go, 
Uh, I don't want to go too deep on you doing the bombing and bombing thing where, where you and Mike huh. Bauman sat down and talked, but I am curious. There was a note in there. Have you given Suits a try yet? No. I've, so I've, I've been catching up on, uh, on Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Okay. Uh, so I fell behind on season two of that. Um, and, uh, and then the deadline. So I haven't had a, a chance to sit down and really veg out, but I will give suits a, a try. I gave, I gave the other guy my word. And so, you know, he's going to try pineapple on pizza. I'm going to try suits and then we'll compare, we'll, we'll compare notes the next time Baltimore's back in town. I only mention it because it's a sneaky, very Canadian show, even though it technically doesn't take place. Really? Again. Well, it's all filmed in Toronto, all the buildings that are supposed okay. to be downtown New York. And then the, the lead actor, I guess you'd, you'd call him the second league, Pat, Patrick J. Adams. Uh, he, He's a Canadian actor as well, so uh, you see a oh, ton I didn't of know that. yeah, you see a ton of Toronto, and then one of the leads is Canadian. So there you go. Now, next time you come on, you can give us uh, you can give us your takes of the downtown Toronto architecture and whether it passes for New York or not. Strange, strange new worlds also sneaky Canadian. They go to to contemporary Toronto. They travel back in time uh, in this season. So wow. if your Canadian listeners might be interested in that. Unbelievable. Uh, all right, uh, Mike Bauman, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. Uh, enjoy uh, enjoy the Star Trek. Enjoy this last third of the baseball season. Yeah, will do. Mike Bauman of Fangraphs, a lot, a lot, a lot of excellent work up uh, from him. Great piece on Lance Lynn this morning and his debut with the Dodgers and, you know, kind of a lot of smart people around baseball looking at that and being like, well, if he landed on the Dodgers or the Astros or the Rays, yeah, of course someone was going to get more out of this guy who, yes, is a little a little at the old end right now and has really poor numbers, but is missing a ton of bats still and is, was operating on a team that has not done the best job getting the most out of guys in the Chicago White Sox. Speaking of fan graphs, tomorrow we're going to talk to Dan Zimborski on the show. Uh, his latest just went up. You may be interested to hear it, especially coming off that conversation with Michael Bauman. Um, who changed their 2023 fate the most at the deadline? So a look at the, the shift in playoff odds and World Series odds uh, before and after the deadline. Make sure you check that out. We'll talk to Dan Zimborski about it tomorrow. We're going to take a break right now. We're going to check off the last big advanced baseball site on our ledger here. We're going to talk to Patrick Dubuque of baseball prospectus next. And Hey, maybe we'll have a, a lineup in the last part of the show. Not positive. Um, if you heard me, by the way, earlier mentioned that there'd be a little bit of Raptors and Canada basketball news, uh, just to tie a bow on that. Raptors are going back to Vancouver. They'll play the Sacramento Kings on October 8th in a preseason game there. Uh, the Oklahoma city thunder and Detroit Pistons will also be playing a preseason game, October 12th, in Montreal. So uh, keep an eye out for those tickets. Don't go on sale until uh, August 25th, but a good opportunity for um, people around Canada to get a look at some NBA basketball. Um, also uh, a fun little window into what Canada's world cup thinking is um, the world cup starts August 25th as well. And Jordy Fernandez, head coach of the senior men's basketball team joined Dan Shulman and Buck Martinez on the TV broadcast last night, uh, which I got a real kick out of. I'm sure Dan Shulman got a real kick out of. Uh, we saw a couple guys like Shaden Sharp, uh, hot, uh, really interesting young Canadian talent at the blue Jays game uh, in, in some Jays gear. So a uh, fun little intersection there between Canada basketball and the Toronto Blue Jays. I will take a break. We'll talk to Patrick Dubuque. On the other side, as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Jay's in action down at Rogers Center at 3 p.m. as they try to salvage a split with the Baltimore Orioles. They are six and a half games back of them in the division right now, holding on to the third wild card spot, two and a half games clear of the Boston Red Sox and a mess of other teams after that. Um, speaking of mess, uh, there were no pictures, but our next guest's wife did not love the look of his peach cobbler. I'm curious to hear how that turned out. It's Patrick Dubuque of Baseball Prospectus. How are you, man? How did the peach cobbler turn out? Uh, you know, the aesthetics of food are so unimportant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it tasted fine. That's that's all I'm going to say about the cobbler. It's, uh, it sufficed. It's, as a dessert. It's suffice. That's all. That's all you need. It just has to to do the job. It just has to plug that hole after meal. Not dissimilar. It, it is the relief pitcher of the meal, right? It, it just <laughs> do a job, and it doesn't have to look sexy. Just get it done. Uh, Patrick, the deadline is behind us, and before we get into some of the specifics, I, I'm curious. So you wrote this uh, a really terrific piece before the deadline that was a preemptive roundup of all the relievers that would be traded and, and what that means. Um, and, and a lot of the heart of that is, well, yeah, you're only going to get 15, maybe 20 innings from these guys down the stretch, even though they might be the biggest thing uh, you add. How do you feel about that piece and the process of writing it? And then how does it feel now, you know, that the deadlines pass and a, and a whole bunch of relievers were not entirely, but basically the only thing moved on deadline day. Yeah, it's kind of a bucket of cold water because everybody loves the deadline. It's fun. You can, it's exciting to think about all the permutation. But the honest truth is that the deadline isn't as important as we want it to be. Uh, and that, honestly, the best deadline deal you can make is the trade you made or the acquisition you made on the prior offseason. Um, trade deadlines are for patching sails, not for building boats. Hmm. Um, and in that sense, like, yeah, if your relievers are easy to get because there's always room for one. You can always stock another reliever. Uh, you can always make room for it. You know, it's harder to do that with position players, harder to find fits, harder to find people who, who work for your lineup, especially this year where there were no offensive players to trade for. Um, so, sure, get relievers. It's fun. Um, but, you know, your team was already good, then it's probably still going to be good. And if it wasn't, then, you know, probably want to catch up on TV. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of the way it shakes out. And obviously some of those relievers are, are better than others. And, and of course, for the teams that do make the playoffs, you know, those 15, 20 innings, the minimal impact maybe doesn't, you don't care about that because if someone comes through in one big inning or two big innings or one big spot, you know, the marginal differences we're talking about here are, are pretty big through that lens. Uh, the Jays adding Jordan Hicks as their headline, um, you know, deadline item. Would you put him near the top of the class at the top of the class of relievers that, that got dealt this week? I think it's, I think he's definitely near the top of the class. Um, you know, it, it's understandable that you want, you know, you go into the playoffs and you want those guys that you can just not worry about. And you probably should. Everybody has problems, you know, and, you know, you can have a guy blow up, uh, but he is definitely in that tier of a reliever where you can just kind of, you know, you, everybody wants that guy that can lock up the seventh, the eighth and the ninth. He is one of those guys. You can, you can put his name in ink and not worry about him. Which is a, a great thing to add to a bullpen that has a, a few of those names as well. The Jays now, I've referenced this stat a couple times, the only team in the league with four guys with a 30% whiff rate 
or higher. I guess with Hicks, you know, there's there are questions about he didn't have a great first outing with, with the Toronto Blue Jays, and um, obviously his April was pretty bad with the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, it, when it comes to relief pitchers, especially guys who have a proven track record, are you of the mind you're, you're kind of you're at the level of of your last five six appearances and and something that happened in you know April or, or a, a tough stretch you had earlier in the season? We can pretty quickly put that behind us. How, how do you feel about the volatility of that position? I think five and six games might be too many, honestly. (laughs) It's you pitchers. It's so hard to tell what's going on with a pitcher, but if they're healthy, then you, it's better to just know this is what, you know, what I have. Um, I'd rather have a pitcher that's good than a pitcher that's been pitching good lately. Uh, And I, I'm not going to think too hard about, you know, a random time in the past. Hicks obviously spent a long time not being quite good enough for what the Cardinals wanted. Uh, he had that 105-mile-per-hour fastball, and people couldn't figure out why he wasn't just a star. I think he's figuring it out. I mean, he's definitely getting those wisps now that he wasn't getting in the past, and I think that uh, I, I don't see any reason why I wouldn't continue on with Toronto. Well, that's a, a positive uh, for Toronto here. Um, does I guess writing about that and doing all the deadline work, does, how does it feel just like like existentially this kind of like fungibility of relievers and the fact that every year it's a different crop, but they're all kind of the the same or the same tier. Like how does that feel? I, you, you use the term, you know, bucket of cold water earlier about the deadline in particular, but we spend so much time on these guys and they are, you know, not, not ethereal in the nice way, but they're, everything is very fleeting with relief pitchers. How does that feel for you? I, yeah, it's it's funny this year because everybody is kind of disappointed with the deadline overall. In terms of volume, it was the same. Yeah, <laughs> there was a lot of moves. Uh, they just weren't the moves everybody wanted to get excited about. Um, and which is honestly, I think, just a progression in the league in general. More teams are locking down more players. Um, and this way, this deadline was very weird because a lot of the sellers were teams that had not planning to sell and had what they're you know other than the Mets who just decided to clean house every other team just decided well we'll just try again next year which i think is probably the same answer to this the padres decided you know we thought we were good and we're going to continue to think that and they're just going to try um the yankees i I don't know if they can have that same level of self-confidence but they obviously went the same way um it's it's interesting in that like every team does what they can i i think the only real problem is with the teams that just basically couldn't make up their minds. Like getting a reliever, fine. You know, I don't think that the Blue Jays are going to, you know, you already had J.J. Cooper on. I don't think the Blue Jays are going to miss the guys they gave up for Jordan Hicks. I think those are the kind of prospects, those kind of back-end rotation people that teams love to get and teams don't really tend to miss when they lose them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I I think I, I like what the Blue Jays did. I think that, you know, given the AL East, uh, they – I think they did as well as anybody in that division as far as improving themselves. When it comes to um, teams that kind of didn't pick a direction, uh, I know you're a Seattle guy. I know you wrote about the Paul Seawall trade over at Baseball Prospectus. Uh, how you how are you feeling on, on that front? Uh, the Seawall trade, I mean, there were a couple of teams that were pretty baffling this year. Um, the Seawall trade is particularly interesting is the Mariners are again, one of those teams that were in limbo who we, everybody thought that they were going to be in contention this year. Uh, and it hasn't worked out and it hasn't worked out because they had this core of this team that, you know, this young, exciting team that isn't that young, but they're exciting. And 
they decided to supplement it with all of these kind of spare parts, your, your AJ Pollock's and your Tommy Listella's. And in the seawall trade, the seawall trade itself is defensible. The Mariners just make relievers. That's one of the things that they're very good at. And so it makes sense. They have a reliever who's going to be expensive. They should go ahead and trade him for other pieces so that they can make another one. Uh, it's who they traded for <laughs> that I have a hard time with because they bought, they just basically got a bunch of uh, high floor, low ceiling guys to fill those holes again. And I think that it really makes it look like the 2024 Mariners are going to look a lot like the 2023 Mariners. Uh, and that's not what you want. No, it's, it's not necessarily what you want. It's not uh you know, I, I don't know that it makes the, the fan base feel super great that, Hey, the team we didn't really believe in, in 2023 is the team that we're not going to believe in, uh, in 2024 as well. Um, the other element of that was they decided, you know, in dealing Paul Seawald, even if you can get there with that trade, um, you know, they also opted not to deal Teoscar Hernandez, who everyone had kind of thought would be a piece that would be available on the market. Now, the Mariners are not too far from a playoff spot. They're three and a half games back of the wild card, but they'd have to jump a bunch of teams to get there. You don't sound super optimistic about the overall quality of this team. Were you surprised that, especially in a market with so few impact bats, that they didn't find a home for Teoscar Hernandez? It is very interesting. Uh, so Jerry DePoto claimed that there was a ton of interest in Hernandez, but that they couldn't get an acceptable offer, um, which given what the acceptable offer was on Seawald, uh, <laughs> it must have been pretty rough. Um, I, the, the problem with the Mariners is that the Blue Jays and the, you know, the Rangers and the Angels, all of these wildcard teams are just kind of better than them, and they also improve themselves more. <laughs> So I think they're further, like they have, they've been on, you know, a pretty warm streak lately, but I still think that all of those teams are going to start pulling away. Um, and I, I don't think the Mariners really have much of a shot this year. It doesn't seem that way. Weirder things have happened, and we know we know well here what can happen if a Mariners team just gets into a wild card right. uh, series. It's not my favorite. Um, so one of the other things the Jays can look at here, beyond the teams chasing them, none of whom, well, I guess the Angels added a bunch of pieces. We'll see if that ends up being enough, and the health status of a few key guys is probably the more important factor there. The teams immediately behind the Blue Jays in the Red Sox, Yankees, Mariners, didn't materially add. The teams ahead of them added about the same amount they did Tampa Bay picking up Aaron Savali and uh, a guy you wrote about Baltimore picking up Jack Flaherty. We're going to see him down at Rogers center today at 3 PM. Uh, what did you think of the Orioles acquisition of Jack Flaherty? Uh, I guess it, it's kind of a, a two part question because the first part is, well, the acquisition of Jack Flaherty and the other part is okay, but only the acquisition of Jack Flaherty. What did you make of the Orioles deadline? I mean, given last year's deadline, they went and caught Jack Flaherty. That's, that is, that's a big step up. Um, I So Jack Flaherty is tricky. Um, he is a name. He was a Cy Young down ballot kind of guy uh, before he got hurt. Uh, the problem is that I don't think he is that guy anymore. Um, he he it's, It took him a couple of years to get healthy enough to pitch again well, regularly. And since he's come back, uh, his, the stuff doesn't look the same. Uh, he has, you know, he famously this uh, early in this year uh, declared that he would not talk about his fastball with reporters anymore after people asked him why it was a little slower than it used to be. Uh, and the fastball has struggled, but it's honestly not even his biggest problem. His biggest problem is that Jack Flaherty doesn't like to throw strikes. Uh, he's never really liked to throw strikes. Even when he was great, he didn't like to throw strikes. And that works for a lot of pitchers. 
you don't have to throw strikes in baseball anymore because all you have to do is throw a strike that looks like a strike and batters will swing at it. The problem is that Jack Flaherty's non-strikes are no longer really competitive non-strikes. He's not throwing it close enough to the plate to even get hitters to be fooled by it. And I think that's just because the injuries have had taken a toll on his command as well as his fastball velo. Um, and I, you know, pitcher, pitchers are crazy and they can mm-hmm. reinvent themselves. They can, you know, Baltimore's obviously going to mess with his, his pitch mix. They're going to ask him to throw his curveball more often, which is his best pitch. Uh, and they could. Like, that, that's what's great about baseball is that everybody can reinvent at all times as long as you're a pitcher. If you're a hitter, you are what you are. Um, but this this version of Jack Flaherty, I think, is very similar to all of the other very average starting pitchers the Orioles already have. And that that was kind of my take on it, too. And it's great to have more of those guys than fewer, especially as some of their guys head towards inning caps and things like that. You know, the the ability to maybe go to a six-man rotation for September or shut Tyler Wells down for a little bit. Things like that matter. But come playoff series, you know, I, I don't know how much it moves the needle. Now, we heard quotes from uh, General Manager Mike Elias that you included one in your piece. Can't set the minor league system on fire just because you're in first place. Um, Um, when, like, at what point is this franchise going to hit a a place where that's not true anymore? Because obviously a steady pipeline of prospects is great. Having a well-regarded system is great, but we've seen teams like the Dodgers, even the Rays, um, you know, at some point you cash in those pieces because you've got a window. And if you're the Orioles and part of this is you want a steady supply of inexpensive labor, uh, it also makes a lot of sense to, cash in while your star players are very young and very inexpensive. Um, could you, I guess, could you see, but should the Orioles pivot off of that belief sometime in the next, I don't know, 18 months? Yeah. The thing is that certain teams just never do. Um, you know, you look at the Astros during when Elias was there and they, they were you know famously very cautious about spending money and just kind of waited until they needed to extend their players and use their money that way. You also can look at our aforementioned Seattle Mariners, who took they took that first playoff appearance in 20 years, and went into this season with an 18th ranked payroll, uh, and they just refused to sign anybody who could make that jump, and instead got Tommy Lastella. Uh, I think the time is now. I think the Orioles absolutely should be interested in a frontline starting pitcher, uh, and I think they could afford it in the sense that you know every baseball team can afford it. Um, baseball is a very lucrative sport. Uh, but yeah, the, especially you know the the starting rotation is clearly where the Orioles should be concentrating, and uh, I I don't think he's I don't think they're going to do it. I think they're just this is who they want to be, which is uh, an interesting thing to want to be. And it, it's obviously it's great that you can sustain it and all of that. But it is uh, I don't know. I'd imagine it's a little tough sell as a fan. I, I get it. Like if I'm in a fan position, the certainty that you're going to be good for quite a while is nice, but also the, like, I don't know, wouldn't you want a world series over like making the wild card every year? And I, I know their upside's a little higher than that, but it is a, it's a little bit of a, an interesting thing to navigate from a, a fan perspective, if not 
a front office perspective. Um, Patrick, did you have any other kind of high level thoughts on, on how the American League stacks up post deadline, or, or which teams, um, you know, you you think have ascended to the top of that heap? Because like, like we kind of talked about, everyone did a little bit. Obviously, Texas and Houston did a little bit more, but they're battling with each other. Did I, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is, did anything really change for you in how the American League looks and feels for this last third of the season? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, I will say that I adored the Angels uh, deadline. Um, I don't think they changed anything, <laughs> but I love the idea that they just looked at their team and thought, this is the only chance we've got, and we're just going to throw our foot down on the pedal. Um, I, it, it's, I don't think it'll succeed, <laughs> but it, it'll be very fun to watch. I want them to succeed because I want them to be rewarded for this just madness that they're trying to pull off. It would be fun. I, I would qualify it by saying that I hope it doesn't come at the expense of the Toronto Blue Jays playoff spot. It can come at the expense of someone else's playoff spot. Um, but, but yes, it, it's going to be fun. And I think, uh, you know, your Mariners will look a, a certain way at it as well. Patrick Dubuque of baseball perspectives. Thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Patrick Dubuque of Baseball Prospectus. Make sure you head over there and check out all his great work from the deadline, including a little bit more on Jack Flaherty, who the Blue Jays are going to see today. Now, we don't have a lineup for today's game yet, but we can certainly take a look at how things shape up and how Jack Flaherty profiles against this Blue Jays team. Not a guy that the Blue Jays have seen a ton because he's spent his entire career in the National League Central, but 44 plate appearances uh, against uh, 45 plate appearances rather for Jack Flaherty against Toronto Blue Jays. And you're not going to like this number, maybe earmuffs this one. The players on the Toronto Blue Jays roster career against Jack Flaherty are three for 37. That is a batting average of zero eight one. Now they have also drawn seven walks. They, they've got a walk rate up around 16%. Uh, that is a positive to be sure. Uh, that is a way you can get to Jack Flaherty and teams have gotten to Jack Flaherty this year. And last he, he's not, you know, Patrick mentioned it. He doesn't like to be in the strike zone a lot. And as his stuff has kind of lost some of its quality, um, it's easier to lay off the stuff out of the zone. He walks a lot of guys. But the Blue Jays are three for 37 against them. It's not great. Uh, Whit Merrifield and Brandon Bell, both one for 10. Matt Chapman, one for four. Uh, Springer, 0 for six. And then a couple of small offers. Um, Vlad, by the way, 0 for one, but he's walked twice against him. Um, and the, sorry, I mean, if you've heard this one before, the one out was a pretty loud one. Um, or not loud, but uh, one with uh, high expected results. Um, so yeah, not great between the Toronto Blue Jays and Jack Flaherty. Now, is there anything in Jack Flaherty's profile that backs up that the Jays shouldn't should struggle against him? Not not really. But I say not really because that's also true of a guy like Kyle Gibson who throws a ton of 92 mile an hour sinkers over the plate and the Jays really struggled with him earlier this week. Jack Flaherty uh sits around 93. His fastball is all over the plate. What and when I say all over the plate, I don't mean he's spreading it I mean, it's over the plate uh, that it is. It, it's just a lot of 
dead center with that fastball. And even if you have uh, a high spin fastball, which he doesn't really, it's, it's a little above average, but not super high. Even if you're very tall again, Jeff Flaherty's six, four, which is tall for a person, but not necessarily for that type of pitcher. Um, or if it has heavy sink, like there are different ways to live with a 93 mile an hour fastball that is over the plate a lot. Jack Flaherty doesn't check any of those boxes. He's not a, He's not a high spin guy. He's not a heavy sink guy. He's not a huge guy with great extension. He's a tall guy with good extension. Uh, there's just not a lot to say that that fastball should play up. And honestly, that's been the story of his decline the last two years. Last year, hitters hit 324 off that fastball with a 603 slugging percentage. This year, that's at 304 with a 439 slugging percentage. So he's done a little bit better keeping it uh, in the yard and minimizing extra base hits. But anytime your most used pitch has a batting average against of over 300, you're playing with fire a little bit. So he'll complement that with a slider that hitters are also hitting almost 300 against and hitting for power even better. He gets decent swing and miss on it, but not relative to sliders around the league. So a 25% swing and miss rate for a slider is not particularly good. Where he does a lot of his damage is with his number three offering, which is a curveball. Batters hitting just 176 against it, 42% whiff rate. So up where you need it for uh, a get out of a situation breaking ball. It's his number three pitch against righties. He'll throw it as his number two against lefties. He should probably throw it more in general, um, just because, again, the results are so much better than the fastball and the slider. There's probably an upper limit on how much you can get away with throwing uh, a curveball, but he's only at about 19%. I, I think you could nudge that a little higher, similar to how Jose Barrios has over time nudged his slurve usage up uh, a little higher. Now, despite using his best pitch, the curveball, a little bit more against lefties, because the fastball is as mediocre as it is. And because the slider is in as ineffective as it is and sliders generally are the pitch with one of the biggest platoon splits lefties have crushed Jack Flaherty last year. And this year It'll be interesting to see what the blue Jays roll out as a lineup against him. Um, a potentially a day where you see more of the, the Jays lefties in there because again, big, uh, big splits for, Jack Flaherty. Um, if you're looking at the Jays lefties, of course you have Brandon belt. Who's going to be in there. It's probably a day where Varsho and Kiermaier are both in the mix. And then, yeah, maybe you find a spot for, for Kevin Biggio, um, whether it's at, at second base and, and Whit Merrifield plays elsewhere or, or, you know, maybe it's a, I don't know where you fit him in. Actually, it's a little tough with Paul DeYoung in the mix now because um, you know, that that's your shortstop spot spoken for. And Whit Merrifield's probably hitting too well for uh for a day off. Um, and George Springer, I don't know. He just had a day off and he just broke uh, a franchise record tying hitless streak. So maybe you want him back in there uh, so he can try to build off. Yes, it was a blue RBI single, but at least one dropped in there. Uh, he was playing coy after the game, by the way, about what he changed to try to break out of the slump. I'd say considering it was only uh, a bloop single that, that broke the streak for him. Uh, not much that has changed. It is worth continuing to ride. That was an O for 35 stretch though. So um, anything you can do to get out of that is pretty important. Uh, Kevin Gosman on the other side for the blue Jays, you know, the story with Kevin Gosman, you don't really need me to set it up. It's going to be fastball splitter with a bit of slider. The slider used much more against righties than lefties. He's also maybe the guy who statistically is going to benefit the most from 
this move to a six-man rotation temporarily. He has a 136 ERA this year when he gets uh, additional rest, which is pretty good. We also see the velo tick up a little bit on the fastball and uh, the splitter. One guy to watch, though, is Adam Frazier, who has uh, ridiculous career numbers against Kevin Gosman, hitting 390 with an 880 OPS against him in 37 uh, career plate appearances. So that's your game for today. It's three o'clock down at Rogers Center. Should be a fun one. The Jays looking for a sweep that would have them back within five and a half games of the division heading into this final you know, third of the season, final third of the season or so. Um, when you are looking at the chances to come back in the division, uh, it's not going to be out of reach until it's statistically out of reach, but you feel a lot better about five and a half than you did about seven and a half. The same way you would have felt a lot better about three and a half if they swept this series um, or, or nine and a half if they didn't. Uh, just doing, you know, working through the, the kind of mental math there. The Jays do have another three set coming up against Baltimore after not too long. They have a very light turn of the schedule in late August and early September. You have to be playing good baseball to take advantage of a part of the schedule like that. But I mention it to say that if you can get out of this with a split, if you can look ahead to another three set against Baltimore coming up after you've had a couple extra off days to, to reset your rotation, and then you look ahead to a, a lighter two weeks or so of schedule, if you can find yourself playing some good baseball during those stretches – the division isn't out of reach. Uh, it'll feel a lot better if you win today, come up with a split in this series and then only sit five and a half back heading into that stretch. Um, we are going to hand it over to Marchese and, and Daniele shortly here. Show Ali is going to come in at two o'clock and he'll have a one hour Jays talk pregame for you. Three o'clock game. And then Blair and Barker will have, will have you rather for Jays talk post game. So kind of wall to wall Jays stuff. Uh, today, which, hey, it's August. What what else are you going to do? Um, thank you to David Sis, who's filling in for Jeff has a party today. Lance Kennedy and Jennifer Rolnick behind the glass. Thanks to Barker for coming in on the show. And then to JJ Cooper of Baseball America, Michael Bauman of Fangraphs, Patrick Dubuque of Baseball Prospectus. Fun show today, kind of taking the pulse of all of baseball, not just the Blue Jays. Tomorrow, we'll be back heavy on the Jays. Break down the series finale. Set up a three set at Fenway. Kevin Gosman, Jack Flaherty, and then we'll turn it over to the Jays haven't officially confirmed, but it lines up as Manoa Barrios Bassett against Paxton Pavetta Bayo. So it should be a fun one in Boston. We'll talk to you at 10 a.m. tomorrow on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360.